Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor of Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. Well, turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. We are uh, in the book of Philippians. We've gotten through the first chapter. We're beginning chapter 2 right now. It's a series called Contentment in the Crisis. And as America is in the middle of a crisis, there is a way to hang on to your contentment. You remember that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter of joy, a letter of contentment, a how-to manual in how to be happy in the middle of crisis. And here we are today. We're going to start chapter 2. In what the news called the miracle at Kew Creek, nine miners trapped for three days, 240 feet underground in a water-filled mine shaft, decided early on that they were either going to live together or they were going to die together. The 50-degree water was up to their chest and it threatened to kill them slowly by hypothermia. So according to one miner's report, he said this, and I quote, when one of us would get cold, the other eight would come around them. They would huddle around the person and warm that person. And when another person got cold, the favor was returned to them. Everybody had strong moments. Minor Harry B. Mayhew told reporters after being released from Somerset Hospital, but at any certain time, maybe one guy got down, the rest pulled together then that guy would get back up and maybe someone else would feel a little weaker, but it was a team effort that kept us alive. That's the only way it would have worked. They faced incredibly hostile conditions together down there and they all came out alive. The sermon's called today, Better Together. There's that thing, that that fellowship of of the saints the forever family. I'm looking into their eyes right now. And, and um, with our forever family is a place we can be loved and love. It's a place that we can serve and be served. And of course, it's a place to pray and be prayed for. And it's receiving blessings while blessing others. That's what the church is. That's, what, that's why, you know, don't forsake the assembling of the saints. Now, if you've got to do it online, I get that. If, you know, if, if there's a reason that you need to be at home, I get that. I understand that. But that's not the number one choice for someone that can be here. Come to church. It's hard to have a dialogue with you at home. It's hard to have a dialogue or, or to love on you or to serve you. you. It's hard to serve the church if you don't come to the church where the church meets. You were born for relationships, and so was I. God created us to live out our daily lives interacting with each other. Relationships are critical in every facet of our lives, whether it is at home with your intimate family, whether it's your extended family, maybe it's, it's at work. You know, relationships are critical. In his book, The Winning Attitude, John Maxwell writes, According to the Stanford Research Institute, the money made in any business is determined by only 12.5% of knowledge. What you know about the product you sell or, or, or that kind of thing, you know, what kind of salesman you are, 
Only 12, 12.5% is determined, the actual income. But 87.5% and a half by its ability to relate to the buyer. Wow, isn't that true? He says 68% of customers quit shopping at a business because of an attitude of indifference toward them by an employee. End of quote. Isn't that true? People desire relationships even with retailers. If only for a few moments, they're inside their shop. So if you've got a business, that's something to pay attention to. What are your people doing? If you're selling coffee, if you're selling whatever you're selling, are you being nice to people? Are you showing respect to them? Are you showing just a, a little bit of care for them? It makes a huge difference. Common courtesies and a warm heart will go a long way in this world. By the way, these same principles, John Maxwell says, applies to churches. I think that's why our church is growing. It's you guys out there loving each other. It's you going up to the stranger their first time and saying, hey, how are you? Welcome to church. Well, I've been coming here six weeks. Oh, sorry. No, it's, it, but you know, shaking hands, you know, not shaking hands right now, you know, maybe with everyone. I let people decide whether they want to shake my hand or not. But uh, it's going up to them and smiling in their face and saying, glad you're here. You know, you have a place here. There's a little byline that God gave me about uh, six months ago for our church. It's where church becomes family. Isn't that true? You know, you can go to church anywhere, but you find a church that becomes your family. That's something special. By the way, um, listen, if if you get good at loving people and building relationships, you will never be lonely in this world or without purpose because you were designed by God to love one another. He says, hey, they'll all know you are mine by the way you love each other. You Christians are so nice. I had a supervisor when I was a cop. He told me, you, you Christians are just too nice to be cops. And I'd smile and go, why do you say that? <laughs> you guys just keep carrying the torch of hospitality forward. That makes a difference. One of the things I hear most often from visitors to our church is how friendly the people are here. Uh, you know, if a visitor makes their way up to, to greet me, that's one of the things before they go, they'll say, this is just really nice people here. I said, yeah, this is your forever family here. Good relationships are critical to finding commit, uh, contentment in the crisis we're facing right now in our lives and our country, but conflicts and relationships are everywhere. They kind of come with their territory. We're not in heaven yet. So how do we handle conflict? How do we strive for unity? Unity is a key ingredient for success in the fulfillment of your life. To have a successful business, the employees must get along and work together. To have contentment in a family unit, the members must work together. To have a thriving church, we must work for unity in every detail. You all serve every Sunday morning. Whether we've wrangled you yet or not is a different story. But you're all servants out there. Every time you greet somebody, every time you tell somebody, hey, how are you doing? I know last week you said you were battling this battle. Hey, I know you're going in for surgery. Can I bring you a meal? That's serving, whether you know it or not. We all know that, that 
very little is accomplished in our lives by ourselves. Very little is achieved without cooperation. When there's unity, there is tremendous power and potential. You know, when we come together, we are greater than our sum. Why? Because Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit is amongst us. And we become more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. We just become more than, than the sum of our, our people. The problem is people don't always get along. They don't always value and love each other as we should. So how do we strive for unity in our relationships? How do we reduce the conflict and increase the cooperation? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about how to have unity and cooperation with others. It's a beautiful letter, a beautiful chapter. At the time this letter is being written, Paul, as I said, is in prison, and he continues to write his children of the faith. Why do we call him that? Why did he call him that? Because he led them to Jesus. They had no concept of Jesus when, they, when, they, when he entered the region, the Greek city of Philippi. They had no, he went down to the river, and he found some Jews down there, and he started talking about Messiah, and he said, he's already come. Let me tell you about him. He led um, people to Christ. Lydia, the seller of purple down there, she's a businesswoman, and she came to Christ, and, and her whole house came to Christ. And then, you know, they get so excited about this, they, they start talking about Jesus. Paul casts out the demon in a woman, and a jailer comes along, and he gets sentenced, and he gets put in jail. Well, the jailer, man, he whoops him a good one. He lays him wide open. His back is bloody. But one night, Paul and Barnabas are, are in prison, and they're singing. And the jail walls just shake. And people came to Christ out of that prison. The jailer comes to Christ. He mended his wounds. Imagine he did that with tears running down his face. He mends his wounds, and then pretty soon he's grown in Christ, and pretty soon his family comes to Christ, and pretty soon everybody's getting baptized. It's amazing. Paul's writing from the pain that he has, people are still coming to Christ. There's always purpose in God's plan for your life, even in the difficult times. And he gives these people that he's come to love so much, his children in the faith, he gives them five rules for establishing healthy relationships. On the back of your bulletin, if you take notes, and I encourage you to do so, I would encourage you right now to flip it over. We all struggle with relationships. And I want to encourage you with five rules for establishing healthy relationships. Let's read our passage today, and then we're going to look at these five rules quickly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not only for, uh, for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of what? No reputation 
taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now stop right there for a moment. I just got to tell you this. If I'm writing this story, if God said, Ben, you write the story, I'd have had Jesus come down in His glory. I would have had Him come down, not as a baby, but as a warrior carrying a sword, a bright light. And he'd again, a castle would have come out of a lake and just sprung up, you know, made out of, out of gold. And his sword would be made from platinum. And I would write this story in such a way to, that I would want him to be the focus of the story. But this verse says that's not what happened. We all know the story of Bethlehem. We know how he came. He came as a lowly baby to a couple who probably were barely getting by. A young couple. This is their first child. He's born in a manger. You know, when we see these mangers, my manger at home looks all clean, right? And that's not how it really was. Animals lived in there. And I'm going to stop with what happens there. This is how Jesus, this is how God sent His Son. He sent Him down. Humbled. He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death. So the story goes on. He didn't just not become, he'd come here as a famous person. He didn't come here as a king, although he will shortly, I believe. But he came as a lowly little child, born to poor parents in a stinky manger. Therefore, when you see that word, my professor says, when you read therefore, you ought to look and see what it's there for, right? Therefore, what was just before that? He just described the humility of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Creator of all of this, of the world, who humbled Himself and came to the world. He came in humility. Therefore, because of this, also, a way of saying it. Because of this, God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. These are the demons. And that every tongue, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. Period. Wow. Five rules for establishing healthy relationships. Here's rule number one. Reduce selfish ambitions. Reduce selfish ambitions. Verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. You know, I'm going to have a great relationship. Reduce selfish ambitions in your relationship. But I want to do this. These are my plans. What about my plans? Paul says, reduce. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. I'll tell you married couples here, you come to a decision. If it's not a win for both of you, it's a loss for both of you. you not one of you can win and the other lose. You're one. That's how we try to make decisions in our marriage like this. If it's not a win for both Debbie and I, it's not a, we're not going to do it. Even if it's a win for her or a win for me. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. I like the way the message puts it. They put it this way. They're, they're a little loose. It's not a translation. It's a transliteration. You don't study from the message, but it's interesting to see what they say. Don't push your way to the front. 
Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. I like that. You know, that, that takes the focus off of my ambitions and starts looking around what's best for them. What would be best for the church today? What would be best for this person who's hurting? What would be best for this person that's lonely or in the hospital? What would, what would be best for them? In other words, don't step on others to get to the top while only thinking of ourselves. All too often, we compete with the same people who are supposed to be on our team. We, we start competing with each other. We're all on the same team. What type of team ever wins if they're busy competing amongst themselves rather than working together? Paul says stop fighting one another and work together. Many gifts, many needs, many callings, but one Lord. What are our ambitions? How are they driving our lives? Now, it's not wrong. I'm not saying don't have any ambitions. I'm saying make sure they don't move to the top where you're making what's best for you. Are our ambitions causing conflict? That's one way to know that you're out of bounds. If you're causing conflict around you, you're, you might need a self-check. Look at what James says on this topic. Where do wars and fights come from among you? He asks. Do they not come from your desires, your ambitions, for pleasure that war in your members? See, our, our nature, that sin nature, you know, we battle it every day. If you've come to Christ, you've been forgiven, you've made, been made whole, you've been made righteous, not of your own, but because of Jesus Christ, we take on His righteousness. When He shed His blood for us, He paid that penalty for us. We're going to talk more about that at the end. But our ambitions still sometimes get the best of us. We still have to work against those and work with God on them. Our society teaches us instant gratification. When my needs and ambitions conflict with your needs and ambitions, we can have trouble. We live in a very competitive world. If, we, if you want to have unity, if we want to have unity in this church, rule number one, reduce selfish ambitions. What's best? What's, what's best? What would glorify God the most? Ask that question. And here's rule number two, reduce selfish conceit. Reduce selfish conceit. Let's read the second part of verse 3 now. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Wow, that's kind of hard to do sometimes, isn't it? What's the opposite of conceit? It's humility, right? Pride can affect us all. We shouldn't do things just to inflate and gratify our egos. If that's what we're doing, we're clearly out of bounds. An egotist is an eye specialist. I like that. You ever talk to somebody, uh, you know, for 20 minutes? And all they do is, is talk about I. I did this. I did that. I am so great at this. I'm so talented at this. By the way, if you didn't know, I could give you four other things I'm talented. No, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. They're the eye specialist. Start working on what are you doing? How are you doing? How's your week? 
hey, is there anything I could pray for you? <laughs> That's different. Here's, a, here's another one. Their eyes are too close together. It's okay to talk about yourself. That's normal. I want you to talk about yourself. I know you want me to talk about myself because you want to know. But when the eyes get start stacking up, look out. When this happens, there's very little room for anyone else in their plans, including God. All that person can see is themselves. Self-centered pride and arrogance is the result of conceit. The Bible says pride goes before a destruction. Listen, the person who gets too big for their britches will eventually be exposed in the end. <laughs> You're listening. That's good. Now let that sink in, but let's not dwell there, okay? All right? Let's move forward. Proverbs 13 tell, 10 tells us, pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. Wow. I need advice. I'm so grateful to have people in my life that give me good advice that I can call up and say, hey, what do you think about this? I'm thinking about doing A, B, and C. And they many times will agree and go, that's a good idea. But sometimes they say, did you think about doing A, C, and then B? Oh, yeah, that would be better, wouldn't it? Think about it. I love having wise people in my life that will speak into it. And I'm blessed because of it. The first cause of conflict is competing ambitions. The second cause of conflict is personal pride. When I've got an ego and I refuse to admit when I'm wrong, there are bound, there's bound to be quarrels. I'm going to mess up. If we could eliminate conceit, we'd solve most of the people problems in the world today. A wise man once said, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. You know that to be true? I once heard a story about an Amish farmer who bought a new pair of overalls. Of course, the Amish are famous for their simplicity and their humility. As he put on his new overalls and looked into the mirror, he said, oh, this will never do. I can't remain humble in, in these beautiful overalls. So he removed the new overalls and put on his old worn out ones with holes in it. And as he stood there again in front of the mirror, he said to himself, <laughs> you'd look good in anything. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Five rules for establishing healthy relationships. Rule number one, reduce selfish ambitions. Rule number two, reduce selfish conceit. And here's number three, rule number three, put on. We've been reducing things. Now we're going to put on humility. We're not done with verse three. It's so rich. Verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Someone once said humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Doesn't that make sense? The Holman Bible puts it this way. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important 
than yourselves. Paul says, don't look down on everyone else. Lift them up. How? By treating them better than you would treat yourself. It's a radical concept. Treat others better than yourself. Yes, that's what the Bible says. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit RestoredCommunityChurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to His Word.